Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to Heels in the Courtroom. This is Liz Lenevy, and today I am joined by Amy Gunn, Erica Slater, and Elizabeth McNulty. So you may have noticed that we have taken a bit of a hiatus over the past couple of weeks, and that is because we have been busy doing our day jobs. Being trial lawyers, uh, we have had multiple trials in a row at this office. Several of the attorneys have been in trial, including many of the folks in the room right now. And so what we wanted to do is just sort of walk through some of the trials that we've been in, talk about the experiences that we had, some of the ups, some of the downs, and how to get through all of that and navigate just what it means to be a trial attorney. Because, man, if the last couple of weeks have taught me anything, it's that this job is really hard guys. <laughs> so I guess I'll start with the trial that Amy and I had about two months ago or so. Yes. And so Amy, maybe you can jump in and explain to the listeners just the basic facts, real high level of what that trial was about. This was a medical malpractice case in St. Louis County where a lot of our cases are filed. It involved a woman who underwent abdominal surgery. She had a hernia that needed to be repaired. It was a little more complicated than your typical hernia repair as she had had previous hernias that had been repaired that failed. So the physician who undertook that surgery was a plastic surgeon versus a general surgeon. And that became important because the defense of the case was essentially that this was a very difficult surgery for a very difficult patient. And the old, it's hard, trust me, I did the best I could defense, which unfortunately did work in this circumstance. But our client was a delightful woman who had trouble after that surgery because of a bowel perforation that occurred during that surgery that was not identified and not addressed, and then ended up causing her quite a bit of problem, including a month-long hospitalization a few weeks after that bowel perforation. In addition, she had more surgeries thereafter. She had a very unusual circumstance of having a shunt in her brain that drained into her belly that became infected because of the infection in the belly based on the bowel perforation. So she had to have that repaired. Just a lot of things snowballed after that. The issue became, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the defendant doctor was adamant that he didn't do anything wrong. And the big lie in the case, because there's always a big lie in the case somewhere, and this one was the way the surgery was performed. The physician had written in his operative report exactly how the surgery was performed. There was mesh involved and he tacked down the mesh. And when you tack down the mesh, you sew it into the abdominal wall, which in this case, it was our belief that as he was stitching through the abdominal wall, as he came back up, he had kind of hooked the bowel up with that stitch on the underside of the abdominal wall. And that was the whole case. And it of course, we try to simplify everything. It seems pretty simple that that would be a bad thing to happen and shouldn't have happened. And his operative report described the procedure and the technique that he used, which lent itself to this notion that there had been a stitching or a suturing of the bowel 
she had a revision surgery, and that revision surgeon noted that there was a stitch in the bowel and described a situation that was completely in line with where this physician, the first doctor, the defendant doctor, had placed that stitch. And yet, by the time we get to trial, the defendant doctor had come up with a new technique that he had used to put this mesh in, which, of course, believe it or not, was nowhere near the bowel, nowhere near the bowel, and disavowed his own operative report and his expert's opinion about how the stitching had occurred, et cetera. The issue, though, was partly this surgery had taken place, when was it, 2016? Of course, we tried it in 2022. So many years had gone by. Our client had recovered for the most part from that surgery and the illness and disability related to that surgery. She continued to have another hernia because that's what happens. They just recur. But for the most part, she looked pretty good. And that hurt us. A lot of time had gone by, and a lot of it was because of COVID. We had a two-year delay getting this case tried. And I think the jury ultimately kind of looked at the situation with a physician who's still practicing, who was just adamant that he did nothing wrong, very strong in his opinions. And then they looked at our client who, yeah, looked like she was probably doing okay. And they just weren't compelled. They just weren't compelled to take money away from the physician and give it to our client. Liz and I identified that. We certainly identified that and did what we could to mitigate that in the sense of trying to explain a little bit about why it took so long. And of course, that wasn't our client's fault. And trying to show the doctor was a liar, which he was, but that can also be very difficult to convince someone. And so we tried to prepare ourselves for that. But once you're there and in the moment, You can't look at the case and say, you know, this is a tough case. I think we're just going to walk away. I can see the way the jury could maybe not buy this based on these extraneous issues. But what do you do, Liz? Take your swing. That's right. (laughs) That's what we do, ladies. We take our swing. And it was a fair trial. Our judge was very much in control of the courtroom and wasn't afraid to rule. I love judges who aren't afraid to make rulings. He was certainly not. I thought he was very fair. Of course, as a result, there's not a whole lot to appeal, but but that's okay, too. So anyway, that's sort of the nuts and bolts of the case that Liz and I tried at the end of May. And what we wanted to do today, in addition to just give you a little bit of information about that case, is really go through and not look at the... Did I mention we lost... (laughs) <laughs> Did I do that? I kind of led up to it. but So we lost. But give some funnies, if you will, that happened during the case. And really to encourage our listeners who I believe we're all kind of starting to get back in the courtroom and there's some trepidation with respect to that. Don't be, you know, just get back in it. So Liz, take it away. I will echo what Amy said, that obviously we're disappointed with the outcome, but... It was a memorable experience. And what I did basically every day after trial was just jot down a couple of notes of some of the weird things that happened every day. Because what you'll find is that when you are in trial, 
there's going to be something wacky that happens every day. Probably multiple things wacky happen every day. The first day of trial, obviously, we're picking the jury. And Amy picked the jury, and I was taking notes so that we could make our strikes during that time of the voir dire. And something that we have talked about, I think it occurred in season one, where I talked about my first time in a jury trial where the judge referred to me as young lady instead of counsel or anything like that. That's how he addressed me in front of the jury. And as we're sitting there, the judge in this case, who I will say did a great job. I think he did a great job of paying attention and making rulings, like you said, and Absolutely. maybe he didn't agree with all of his rulings. But I certainly couldn't argue that he was putting in the work to understand and really digest the case. But at one point, the judge did ask the jury if they recognized any of the parties present, any of the attorneys present. And when he referred to Amy and me, he goes, the plaintiff's attorneys here, does anybody recognize these young ladies? And I didn't even catch it because <laughs> I was looking at my notes. I was still writing down my chart and everything. And Amy kind of nudges me and she's like, young ladies. And I said, what are you talking about? And she's like, young ladies, write that down. <laughs> well, so. I just thought it was funny because we do talk about these kind of things in that exact instance on a podcast before. And when that had happened to you originally, I'm not sure I noticed it, but now I'll never not notice it. And of course, you all know that I'm happy to be referred to as a young lady these days. So that was a little bit like bittersweet for me. But yet the point is that the judge in all of his authority sitting on the bench, his words matter. They're supposed to matter. The jury's supposed to follow them. He tells them what to do, when to do it. And even though it might seem innocuous for a person with that authority to refer to lawyers on the case as young ladies, it certainly can be seen as undermining any authority that Liz and I clearly have and deserve by sitting at that table. And I know that wasn't his intent, but yet it certainly had an impact on me. And I did nudge Liz. I'm like, write that down. Because... I knew we were going to talk about it one day on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and clearly the judge said, does anyone know these young men exactly. when he introduced the two male opposing counsel, right? Oh, yes. That did not happen. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a girls versus boys situation because it was two male defense attorneys and a male physician. And it was me and Liz and our female client. So it was very much a boy versus girl. Just by looking at the tables, that's what you would see, which I guess does emphasize the words. So that was the very beginning of the trial. We're literally 15 minutes Correct. <laughs> past 9 a.m. <laughs> and, and that's already happening. The other issue that happened that I sort of was taken aback by was the jury itself, pretty decently diverse racially. We were in St. Louis County, so it's a more diverse population than you might see in some of the more rural counties. But there was an Asian male juror. And at one point we were taking a break and someone in our little circle, that's how, that's how I'll refer to our little circle, at one point was referring to him and called him Oriental. And I'm just going to use this as a quick PSA in case you don't already know. That's an incredibly outdated term. The quick way to remember it is rugs are oriental. People are not. They are Asian. 
So I got to do a really quick lesson on DEI in that moment. I wrote that one down of, oh boy. But the other thing that happened during jury selection that was interesting and will stick with me, and this person will come back up later when we discuss the end of the trial, is that there was a doctor on the jury panel. We knew that when we got our initial case list. And just so if anyone doesn't know, whenever you sit for a jury, there's basic information that you fill out and you provide to the court and the court then provides that to the attorney. So, you know, we know birthdays, whether you've been involved in any other litigation, are you related to police officers, which I think is for criminal cases. But we also know your education and employment. And so we knew that this particular juror was a physician and that she worked at one of the other local St. Louis hospitals. Because of that, we knew that she obviously had a very strong medical background. Now, the immediate reaction is if you have a medical malpractice case where you are suing a physician, the last person you want on the jury is another physician, right? You don't want that person on your jury. Amy and I went back and forth discussing her quite a bit. And ultimately, we decided to leave her on the jury because our thought process was this is a pretty complicated medical case. She's going to understand the medicine. She's going to be the foreperson and she's going to explain it to the rest of the jury. So if we can convince her, we've got everyone because they're surely they're going to listen to the doctor. And so to everyone's surprise outside of our team, we let the doctor stay on the jury panel. So that was day one weird things that happened. And you were right, right, about her being the foreperson? Yes. Foreshadowing. Yes. Foreperson, foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) Voidir took all day. The following morning, I did opening, which was exciting for me to get back in there and do an opening. I hadn't done an opening for trial since 2018. And Erica, you and I were talking about it, just sort of the nerves of getting up there and really starting the trial, because at that point, it is go time. And the way that at least I felt about it and the way I described it to Erica, because I think you were a competitive swimmer as well, right? (laughs) was. I love that. This is going to be relevant. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Because the way I felt about opening, and I described it to Erica this way, opening feels like when you are behind the starting blocks before you get up onto the block and they shoot the gun and you get to dive in and start. And at that point, once you're in the water, it just muscle memory takes over and you are just swimming your heart out trying to finish your race. And that's how I felt about opening. I'm nervous, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. And then instead of a gun, I have, is plaintiff ready to give opening statements? Is the young lady ready to speak? (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how I felt about it. I was so nervous. I had all those jitters. And then I got up there and it just felt like muscle memory taking over. And I got through open. It was fine. It was great. It was good. I was there to watch it. It was really good. I think what was really important for opening, especially in a case like this, was just laying out some of the basic terminology and laying out some of the images so that the jury had some reference points for when our expert got up there, which is what happened afterwards. Immediately after my opening, Amy put on our expert and I thought he did a great job. He did. And this goes back to my philosophy in all these cases, particularly medical malpractice, because you have to do so much teaching. But it applies to product or any case where you have to teach the jury some kind of science. Laying it out in opening is important. You can do it in a very objective way. And then having it immediately followed up by your expert testimony, where he or she really does repeat everything you said in opening, but with additional charts and graphs and illustrations. I'm a big fan of illustrations 
both in terms of anything that you have in the case itself, like x-ray, CT scans, pictures, but also illustrations that you can get from medical sources as well. Just you have to teach the jury the anatomy. And as I said, this was a abdominal bowel perforation case. So you really have to teach the layers of the abdomen and where the bowel is in relation to this, where the stitches would have been. And I always tell my experts, look, you're the professor. All right. You're the professor. You are teaching your first year students anatomy. And when they understand that, it's easy to do. And the jury really loves it. I think they really do. And if you don't take the time, it might be tedious, but if you don't take the time and teach the jury the anatomy, the problem is the defendant then can get away with saying anything because they don't know any different. If you haven't taught them the building blocks of the case and of the medicine or the science of it, the defendant and their experts will get up and say basically anything. And the jury will not know that it's not accurate or true. And you can cross them on those things. But by that point, I think the jury's just lost. So it's imperative to teach the jury the fundamentals of the case. So the other weird thing that happened on day two, though, was we had a COVID scare. Oh, that's correct. (laughs) Did you forget? Well, we had it in our case and the two weeks later in Erica's case that I helped her with. (laughs) So, yeah. So if anybody (laughs) thought COVID was over, it's not. It It was right after the lunch break. The judge came in and he had a really, I think, a nervous look on his face. But he came in and explained that one of the jurors who was not impaneled but was in the room during the selection process the day before, had called the county and explained that she had tested positive. And so the judge, we were all kind of a little bit of a loss. I don't know how much guidance the judge was provided on this. It looks like he had a little bit of instruction from the health department. I think he went to the CDC website and found out what the protocols were. So we brought in 60 jurors Mm -hmm. to select our 14. And so that fills up the entire courtroom. And the person that called the next day with the positive test was juror 50. And she was in the back left-hand corner of the room. And so it's not like they were sitting right next to each other. But the judge came back in. And you're right. He just was like, oh, And said to the attorneys, this is what happened. Number 50 called in this morning and said she tested positive for COVID. She would have been in the room. No one was wearing masks anymore. And what do you want to do? And he basically just left it up to the 14 to say, this is what happened. Does anybody want to go home? And we had one juror, like, raise her hand so fast. I mean, she almost fell out of her chair. And he dismissed her. But literally, the other 13 were like, meh. I mean, couldn't care less. So COVID's not over, but I think in a lot of people's minds, it really is. So that gal left immediately and alternate number one took her spot and away we went. Yep. And so that took us to the end of day two. And then on day three, our client went on and I put on our clients. Like Amy said, she was a very genuine person, but she was also very scared. Yeah. And that's to be expected. Yeah. I don't fault her for that at all. But it was getting to the point where I was afraid that her nerves were going to keep her from being able to effectively advocate for herself. And so you had to have a pretty serious conversation with her. Oh. But she did fine up there. She did fine. She was able to get on and off the stand, took no real hits on anything. And then after that, 
our case was pretty much closed. She was our last witness. There was some video depots played in there. Amy had referenced the revising surgeon, and we had played him through a video deposition, which I thought was very compelling. It was. I do worry with video depots, though, how much jurors actually pay attention to them versus live testimony. So that's something I think about. But I don't know how else to get a treating doctor to trial. Yeah, it is one of the shortcomings oftentimes when you do have a treating physician who is supportive of your case, not in terms of standard of care, but certainly causation and or damages, it's just nearly impossible to get them to come to trial because you don't want to subpoena them. And most of them are very busy. And I got to tell you, it's also a little bit scary not to have that deposition in the can. And what I mean by that is there's still a treating physician employed by a health system or a practice usually in this city, meaning that they are a colleague of the defendant doctor. And even though maybe you've taken their deposition already or read their records and talked to them or whatever, it's still a little scary to me to put that person on the stand because you just still don't know in that context if that doctor's going to get nervous about being seen as some kind of traitor to the profession or maybe look at the doctor in the eye for the first time and get nervous. So it's just unfortunately one of the things we have to deal with. I'll say I took that revising surgeon's video deposition and I was nervous the whole week leading up to it. Of What is he going to say? I don't know what he's going to say. That's the scary thing is walking in and not knowing what he's going right. to say. And when he gave us good testimony... I was like, that's great. That's great. But there's no way to predict that he's going to appear the same way in trial, the whole setting. There's that jury there. His colleague is there. And in this situation, it wasn't just his colleague. He had actually been one of the training surgeons in the residency program where this defendant doctor was a resident. So he helped train this guy. So that relationship went back a long time. And again, I was taken aback by how honest and upfront, not saying that I thought he was going to lie, but just saying that I didn't expect him to be as honest as he was with right. us. And that's a credit to him as a physician in this situation. But anyway, after we closed, the defendants then had the opportunity to call all their witnesses. And the first witness they called up was a pathologist who, when Amy and I looked through his deposition, I didn't think his testimony was that bad for us. Frankly, I thought it kind of helped us in a lot of ways. And so I had anticipated, and I crossed him, and I had anticipated that it was going to be a pretty straightforward, easy cross. I really didn't have that much to fight with him about. And I got up there, and y'all, I don't know if I've ever felt so disrespected in a courtroom. Yeah, he's awful. He was rude. I mean, and I'm not trying to sound whiny, but genuinely, you would think the way he treated me, I had kicked his dog or something because <laughs> it was just so genuinely aggressive mm -hmm. and I think unnecessarily confrontational. Was. Yeah, he was a jerk. The right thing to do in that moment would have been to stay really calm and to back off because at that point, it just looks like a mean old man yelling at a nice young Young lady. Young lady. A nice yes. young lady. But that's not my attitude in regular life. And I became just sort of, you know, whatever level he took it, I had to take it to that level too, which was not the right approach. It's a good learning experience for me. But it was just, it was weird. I'm not sure I agree that your approach was not the right approach. That is a very subjective thing to measure in that moment. Because even though you think you know what the jury's seeing, you're not really sure. And I think we all have been there where, all right, I have a decision. Do I look weak and move on to my next question? 
Do I get aggressive back to him and play on his level? It's not an easy decision to make. There's not a right or wrong, so I don't want you to feel like you did it incorrectly. He was changing his testimony, adding new opinions, because I think what happened is, well, I know what happened. He gave a deposition and had certain opinions that did not conform to the other experts' opinions. They were in contrast to the other experts' opinions, and we liked that. So we even said to the opposing counsel, you're bringing that guy? And then we kind of licked our lips like, all right, can't wait to get that guy because... And the lawyer was like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I? I'm like, are we reading the same transcript? Because sometimes you just don't know. If you're <laughs> are you in the same case? We were pretty surprised that he would even bring him. But it happens. And I think I mentioned this to you, Liz, after you sat down after your open. I said, listen carefully to the opening statement from the defense attorney, because you may hear some stuff you've never heard before. Because I did feel like we were kind of on two different planes with respect to the case that we were trying. He did not help them. Not only what he was saying, but his attitude. He was a terrible witness for them. I ultimately don't think he had much of a role in their win because their standard of care expert the very next day came in and said, yeah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Again, because you said he, they were talking over each other. Yes. So the following morning, they brought in another causation expert. I got the opportunity to cross him as well. It went much better. It went much smoother. I think I had sort of, you know, worked out some of the kinks the night before. And Amy, you helped me sort of game plan with him, which I appreciate. But after that causation expert, then came their standard of care guy. And I will say, he on paper... Very impressive. Oh, yes. Yes. That CV was, that looked great. 70 pages. <laughs> Aren't they? I do these yeah. surgeries all the time. Yeah. He was this kind of guy. And then Amy went up there. And Amy, I'll let you tell the story of how you crossed him, but it was incredibly effective. And this is also the point where the physician on the jury made eye contact with me. And I thought to myself, we got her. So he was a surgeon who allegedly does these same types of reconstructive surgeries on the abdominal wall. And again, remember, I told you that the operative report was very clear that this physician had tacked down that mesh down through the abdominal wall in the area of the bowel. The procedure that he allegedly did was a TAR, transverse abdominus release. And that has to do with the muscles that were dissected out and brought together. But as I said, his op note indicated that he stitched that mesh down into the belly. A true TAR, because I watched lots of videos and read lots of articles, you actually stitch that mesh up into the anterior abdominal wall as opposed to the posterior abdominal wall. So I know it's hard to describe without my illustrations and my pictures, but if you're stitching down, you're going to get the bowel. If you're stitching up, you're not, clearly. And in this expert's deposition, he kept saying things like, it couldn't happen this way. It didn't happen this way. He was nowhere near the bowel. And I just kept asking him questions, nailing him down, nailing him down. And then of course, he knows what a TAR is actually supposed to be, which is not what this defendant doctor performed, despite calling it that. And when I got to cross-examine him, I said, doctor, are you under the impression that the defendant doctor performed the TAR 
this way, you know, and into the anterior wall. And he was like, well, yeah. And I pulled out the defendant doctor's deposition testimony because he hadn't testified yet. And the operative note, which were clearly describing the procedure of stitching down toward the bowel. In fact, the words I stitched down were in the deposition. And so the doctor on the stand, the expert doctor, was literally defeated. Like he got small and his this big, you know, 70 page CV stud kind of really got small in his seat and was having a hard time answering questions loudly, you know, and because I just kept reading it to him. And I said, this is the defendant doctor's description. Is this what he did? And the last question I asked him, which I'm going to forget, but his answer was, you're going to have to ask him. Mm-hmm. That was the way it ended. Basically, their own expert on standard of care was so confused about what this defendant doctor actually did, he could no longer even explain what had happened or how it happened or whether it was even negligent. So the one thing I'll add with him, and then we'll wrap up day four, is that during your cross-examination, you also brought up the literature because they were citing the literature and basically what the success rate, it basically went to the damages in the case. And at one point, he tried to dismiss the literature saying, you know, you can't trust the medical literature. And your response was, you're telling this jury that they can't trust peer-reviewed medical literature published by the medical community for the medical community, something along that line. And he gave some answer of, oh, yeah, you can't trust these. And at that point, the doctor on the jury stopped taking notes. She put her pen down. She looked directly at me and (laughs) shook her head no. And that was the moment that That I said, we got her. She knows he's lying. Yeah. She knows he's lying. (laughs) Yeah. And which, again, is the risk of putting someone knowledgeable on the jury because it's a risk. You can say, well, we knew that that would be her response to something as stupid as what that doctor said. But no one else on the jury, it meant nothing to them because it's just articles. Okay, yeah. Media. Yeah, no one can trust the media. All right. That makes sense to me. But peer-reviewed medical research, a physician is going to understand that's how we learn things. That's how we decide how to care for our patients and change things and advance our profession. And so, again, it turned out that she was a good choice for this jury. But at the end of the day, that was the last witness of the day. And what happened is... The defendant doctor was going on the next morning before we closed, had all night to prepare. And this is a definite disadvantage of med mal cases. The defendant is a doctor, has been listening all week to your case, which up to that point, maybe he's read some depositions, but he's been listening and calculating and figuring out the loopholes and how to fill the holes or how to twist things. And that's why they almost always leave the defendant doctor for the last witness, because they can just start making things up. And you can say it's a new opinion and you can argue, which we did. But at that point, this doctor knew the only way he was getting out of this case is by lying and saying, I stitched up. And the judge did let in this video of a random corpse where they were performing this TAR procedure and they were stitching up. If there was an error from our judge, I would say it was letting that video in because it had never been, it was quote demonstrative, but I knew exactly what it was going to be used for because that's the only thing the jury saw was somebody stitching something up. And then that doctor saying, that's the way I did it even though his operative report clearly indicated he did it differently. And the revision surgeon said, 
the stitch was in the bowel, I saw the hole, you know, <laughs> I mean, but they saw the video. And then last thing they heard was the defendant doctor saying, this is the way I did it. And no amount of cross-examination of him had previously saying, no, you said down was going to work. And I really think that was probably the death knell of the case. But back to the foreshadowing. So as you all know, we did lose the case. <laughs> but <laughs> enough already. It wasn't, it wasn't a unanimous verdict. It was not. We did get two of the 12 jurors. And one of those two votes in favor of us Wait for was it. the physician on the jury. That's right. Yes. We let a doctor stay on the jury in a medical malpractice case. And she was. Lost, but still convinced the doctor on the jury. And she was the foreperson. <laughs> yes. And so what you hope is that the foreperson is not only for you, but also a strong advocate for you and in a position of power as the foreperson and a person of knowledge as a physician, we felt pretty good about that. And she came back in and she was holding the paper. And so we thought, oh, this is good. And then they read it and you're like, what just happened? I always ask for the jury to be polled. I always ask it because partly I just want that juror to stand up and say, you know, is this your verdict against me? And, and say yes and look me in the face and like feel bad about it or something. <laughs> but afterwards, when they were asked, is this your verdict? They got to say no. And both of those jurors came into the courtroom afterwards because they're allowed to come speak to us. And, you know, it's kind of hard if you've not been successful. But this juror doctor said a couple of things. Number one, Thank you for letting us say no. And I'd never thought about it from a juror perspective to allow that person to voice their objection, not just write their name on a piece of paper. So I would always ask to poll the jury, but now I have an even, I guess, better reason than just making someone look me in the face and tell me no. <laughs> but I loved learning that from that juror. And the other thing she said was basically, it was like talking to a brick wall. Like these people had made up their mind. There was nothing that she could say. And she tried. The lessons are many, not the least of which is in a med mal case in particular, it has got to be simple. And I only ever took this case because it seemed pretty simple to me. Put a stitch in the bowel and then not notice it. And she gets an infection in her belly. I mean, it's pretty simple. That doctor is going to stick with me for a long time because she was so clearly flustered. She came out as soon as the judge released them. I mean, she made a beeline to come talk to she us. She was very upset. She was clearly upset with the verdict. And I wrote down the same comment about brick wall. She also mentioned that she had drawn a diagram. Yeah. She drew a diagram for her fellow jurors to explain to them all the ways that the defendant and his experts had talked over each other and how their theory didn't make sense because of it. She mentioned that really our theory of the suture in the bowel, the stitch in the bowel, was the only one that made sense when you actually looked at all of the evidence. And then she said the thing that I think is the highest compliment, which is, I hope I never need a lawyer like you, but if I do, I know who I'm calling. Right. That's a small consolation. We probably won't take her case, but I right. do appreciate <laughs> I do appreciate getting I don't a call. know. Now that you've taught her how to analyze a medical malpractice That's case, true. if she sees one, she may know it when she sees it. That's right. Maybe she'll be our next expert. I will say after that week spending that time with you, Amy, and our trial team, Claudia, Zach, Tyler, Sarah, everyone that came and helped. 
we have a wonderful team here. Exactly. And that made me, I was so grateful for that of even though we lost the case, at least I got to spend the week working with just really top-notch people, people I like being around and doing the kind of work that I like. I mean, at the end of the day, we lost, but I think we put up a hell of a fight for a deserving client. And that is a small consolation. It is. And as I always say, the job is not to win, although that is I guess the goal, the job is to show up and to take your swing on behalf of your client. And we certainly did that. And we can certainly be proud of that. So that was a not so fun, but kind of fun walk down memory <laughs> lane with you all. Uh, thank you for tuning into this episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. And if you want to reach out to us with a question or a comment, you can reach us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks so much. Bye. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 